0: Welcome to Global Innovators with me, Jim Stenman. As a journalist, I've spent over a decade working for top news outlets like CNN and Reuters. I currently run World One Media, a UAE-based digital content agency with an eye on the developing world. In this podcast series, we'll meet inspiring individuals exploring new frontiers, often risking it all to bring their ideas to life, learning many lessons along the way, and growing as human beings on that journey. As we'll hear throughout this series, the path to success rarely happens in a straight line. It takes ambition, perseverance, and strength of character. I truly hope these conversations will inspire people to take charge of their own destiny and really reach beyond what they think is possible. Coming up on our very first episode, Catherine Budd, co-founder of Now Money, a startup that's shaking up the world of mobile payments, having been featured in Forbes as well as the Financial Times. Its digital platform, which has processed over 1 million payments, offers low-paid migrants, typically excluded from traditional banking, access to basic financial services, something the company believes everyone deserves. Catherine herself cut her teeth working in UK FinTech, which provides a strong breeding ground for her future entrepreneurial journey. I caught up with her during a recent trip to Saudi Arabia. So Catherine, uh, let me ask you, you grew up in the UK, but you come from quite an international family. Your parents were born in Argentina and Belgium, respectively. And I believe it's fair to say that both of them are quite high achievers. How did growing up in that kind of environment shape the person you are today?
1: I come from a family of people that are not afraid of trying something new and I wouldn't say that it's something that I realized was important until quite a lot later down the line Uh, my mum was the first woman to ride in the Grand National so for people that are fans of horse racing or people that are from the UK um, they'll be familiar with that race it's the biggest horse race with the biggest fences in the world she was only 21 and I've always known that growing up, that mum had done that, uh, but never really thought of it as being that big a deal because that's just like, you know, what people in our family do—they just want to do something, they just do it. Um, my dad was a was a doctor for most of my childhood, and then just randomly one day just went off to retrain and became a barrister and just retrained and then did two jobs for the rest of his career so but it was never a a big deal or like look at me I've done this thing it was just go off get it done and let's just see what happens and there are a lot of business people on both sides of the family as well that have started businesses had them for a while sold them closed them done something else so it was just never that strange I guess to think about uh, either living somewhere different which again I'm quite an international family so There's lots of people from lots of different countries that have moved from one to another, started businesses, trying something new, living somewhere else. It just never really felt that daunting. Uh, So I'm really lucky that I've had some really great uh, influences from my own family and then in the payments businesses that I worked in as well.
0: Help me understand what led you down the path of entrepreneurship, which actually gave you a reason to stay in the UAE at a time when there was an opportunity to move somewhere else.
1: So I'm very lucky that I've spent almost my whole career in payment startups, although we didn't really know that term startup at the time, but I was part of Nectar, which is an enormous loyalty card in the UK, which has around uh, 30 million users, I think. So that company went from having a handful of people to about 800 in the time that I worked there. From that, I was introduced to a company called Cardlytics. And that company was really successful as well and IPO'd um, a few years ago. And through the same network of people, I was also introduced to a role in Dubai. This is going back nearly 10 years now. And that was working on credit card products, but less of a startup environment and I loved being in Dubai, uh, had made a great circle of friends here. I had an opportunity to move on with the business that I was with before to a different region. I wasn't really ready to do that. I thought that Dubai had a lot of opportunity. So did Ian, my co-founder. And we noticed that it's just very difficult to get a bank account in the Middle East. In a market of 10 million customers, you would be hoping for a fairly healthy number of new customers joining each month. And that just wasn't the case because banks have quite a high minimum requirement for Salaries, which is is basically what you earn per month to be considered worthy of being a customer at those banks. And at a premium bank, it can be very high. Um, You could be looking at upwards of three or four thousand US dollars or equivalent per month. We thought uh, there's got to be a better way. Surely there's something that we can do along the digital banking lines for these types of customers. The, The timing was right because. Particularly things like smartphone penetration had really increased by that point um, in the UAE. I think even in 2016, 2017, they had this goal to get to like 100% Wi-Fi coverage across the UAE. So that was really good. And the falling price of smartphones. So even by then, you could get a smartphone that would, would work perfectly well on the, kind of any of the app stores for about 200 dirhams. And the price, I think, is even cheaper now. So that was really critical. I'm pleased to say that it's taken us um, a long time. The battle was much harder than we thought it would be, but that is essentially the product that we have. We have a digital banking solution that works very well for people that are on a low income.
0: And who exactly are these individuals? I ask because those listening to this podcast outside the Gulf may not necessarily be familiar with the dynamics of the population in a country like the UAE, where locals essentially only constitute roughly 10% of the overall population.
1: It's typically migrant workers from India, uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Philippines. And we work with any corporate business that has blue collar workers. So it could be a hotel, construction company, um, drivers, hospitality. And we give that company a payroll solution so that they can easily pay all their staff. And then we give each one of their staff a Now Money account that they can get paid into. Um, all the account holders have the Now Money app on their phone. And from there, they can send money back to their families, which is really the reason that most of them move to the Gulf. Uh, they can also buy local or international mobile recharge. Um, they can monitor the transactions that they make with their Visa debit card. And they can also take um, small advances, pay bills, various other value-added items for them.
0: And let me ask you, so you're obviously partnering with traditional banks to make this happen with your app providing the front end of what users see while the actual accounts sit with the banks. Am I then right in saying that their perception of low-income workers must have changed through working with now money, especially since the low-paid segment offers really a huge opportunity if, if seen as a whole rather than when looked at individually?
1: Yeah, so we work with multiple banks who are under pressure to provide some kind of payroll and banking solution to their own corporate clients' employees. So, if the bank has, for example, a construction company or a hotel as a client, those employees of those clients can't get bank accounts. So, the company obviously comes to the bank saying, You need to help us out here with something. So, in the past, banks have either referred that business to exchange houses, um, there's a couple of payroll card providers, but Typically, the clients have been fairly unsatisfied and so have the banks, because obviously it begins to start to reflect badly on them. Uh, so we've been really fortunate that we've had a lot of incoming interest from banks who are looking to provide a really good solution to their corporate clients and their staff.
0: You know, it's easy to see how people in the West might take banking access for granted, but I suspect services like yours actually have the power to change lives, really. What are some of the most interesting testimonials that you've received from those using the product?
1: The most important one, like, you know, I guess it's subjective based on each person, I think is just the time that these people save. So um, previously, you know, they would get their money paid onto like a prepaid card with no real functionality um, or cash a lot of the time as well. Some of the free zones were still paying in cash. Um, They would then Go to an ATM on their day off, which again might be a bus ride or, you know, at least a long walk away from their accommodation. Take out all their cash in a big lump sum. Walk to an exchange house. Send it home. You know, you have to make sure that all those details are filled in super accurately every single time. No mistakes. If you make a mistake, it can be, you know, a week before you find out that it's gone wrong. And you'd only find out because your mum calls and says, oh, I didn't get the money. Where is it? And then you've got to go back to that shop again. So... The process that people were having to go, to go through before to take money out of the financial system, simply to put it back in again, was just like crazy. And that was what we kept trying to tell people when we came up with the idea for the business. We get a lot of feedback on um, just how easy the app is to use, like how people have got their day off back, um, which was another one that when we started the company, we got told more than once by funds or uh, banks that these people like queuing. This is actually the highlight of their day off. This is how they see their friends, um, which, yeah, so to being able to kind of sort of smash that pretty crazy myth has been a, a good one. But we also give people really good rates as well. So people can make savings on the remittances that they send through now money over what they would get uh, as a rate from going into a brick and mortar store. And that's simply because we don't have the same costs as a brick and mortar store.
0: Right, so essentially not too different from the likes of online retailers such as Amazon, but I guess on a much smaller scale. Let me ask you this. So running a business like Now Money surely doesn't happen without teamwork. How do you and your co-founder, Ian, complement each other? Um, I'm especially curious because you're defying what many consider a golden rule of not going into business with friends or family, something I I know that you personally don't agree with.
1: The most important thing, I think, in having a co-founder is you've, they've got to be somebody that, like, you've got a deeper connection to. So Ian's somebody that I've been really good mates with since university. We've got a lot of mutual friends, like, from, from back home. And you're going to go through such tough times in a startup, and some of them are going to be really testing. And I know that some people say it's a, it's a mistake to work with somebody that's a friend, because what if you fall out with them? But I think the times are so testing in a startup that if somebody wasn't a friend, you would never bother to really see it through. Whereas because we are such old friends as well, even though there have been some really testing times, you know, we had that really deep-rooted friendship, which has carried us, you know, and still is today. I think it's also very hard as a sole founder to cope with a lot of the things that are thrown at you because, you know, it's very difficult to find humour in a lot of the testing things if you're on your own. Whereas if you've got somebody else, You can usually make light of even the darkest days, (laughs) Um, which, yeah, I don't know if that's okay to say, but yeah, you can you generally can find something, even if it's a bit of dark humor. The Dubai office has still got 30 of the team there. Um, I'm full-time in Riyadh and Ian is there to run the Dubai office and I'm here sort of starting up the, the Saudi operation and that's going really well. And I don't have to worry, are the team okay? You know, are they you know, getting concerned without having somebody to drive the ship because Ian's there doing an amazing job. So, yeah, I think it would have been extremely difficult to do it alone.
0: So if anything, then, do you think it would be fair to say that the friendship has actually changed for the better?
1: Oh, completely. It's a totally different type of friendship. I mean, I think now when you're 35, the friendship you have is very different to when you're 19 anyway. Um, Obviously, when we were at uni having a real ball but um everybody's got different priorities yeah Ian's got two children now so I think the friendship will be super different anyway (laughs) even if we hadn't have got the business but yeah I guess we don't spend that much time kind of doing like fun things together outside of work anymore because we do we obviously see so much of each other through work um and that's probably I guess if you do start a business as somebody something that you have to accept is it, your friendship will take a very different trajectory because the majority of what you talk about is work-related, work stresses, work objectives, goals, this, that, and the other. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot to be said for having a co-founder that you that you trust.
0: So, Catherine, um, the banking industry in the UAE is highly regulated and going through a consolidation since there are so many different players in a relatively small market of about 10 million people. Can you reflect on the unique challenges that you faced when transitioning from employee to an actual business owner here in the Gulf? Yes, you know, there are opportunities, but that's not to say that you can start operations overnight, correct?
1: I think a misconception about Emerging markets. I mean, and I, I can't actually speak so much of Africa because I'm not as familiar with that market as I am with the Middle Eastern market. But a misconception is that if there aren't existing sort of status quo that are similar to you, that that means that you can just sort of come in and, and get going. Whereas that isn't the case really at all, especially if your business is in payments. So when people talk about fintech, I think there's, it's important to differentiate between businesses that operate within the financial services sector and then businesses that operate in the payments infrastructure. So it's great if you are somebody that's developed like a sales platform for a bank. You can operate here, no issues. You can set yourself up in a free zone. You can just get going with that and probably have a great time selling into some banks. If you want to be able to support payments, so that might be receiving salaries, managing payroll, uh, providing people with cards, that's a big one then you need to make sure that you've got the right partners to be able to do that. And that means working with the big boys. So That means working with people like Visa, MasterCard, um, banks, and people like that can print your cards. And those sort of businesses are not going to work with you if you don't have a license or something that they think is acceptable and permission from the regulator to be able to operate your product. So it may feel like, oh, you could just you know, come in here and get going and launch something. But... In reality, it's, it's not actually that easy to be able to get going with a product in the payments industry, especially if you want to operate on the local currency, which is AED in uh, the Arab Emirates and obviously Saudi Rial in, in Saudi. I think aside from, from the regulatory stuff, which is probably no surprise for anybody op- operating in the payments industry, we've had our like, fair share of... Um, difficult sort of people. We have, we've had a difficult investor in the past. We've had, um, you know, the same, it's always difficult finding good people to work in the company. Uh, that's really hard to find good talent that is prepared to work really hard, uh, which startups obviously <laughs> are going to be working pretty hard. And um, it's a fun place to work in our money, but people work hard and play hard. So it's not the right environment for everybody. It's a, you know, all-star football team, if there's somebody that you know, can't, is, is always on the bench, you've got to make space for somebody else. So I think that's a very similar challenge that a lot of the businesses in this region face. And I think globally, actually, finding good talent to work in startups is hard. Because they, that kind of good talent also has their choice of you know being able to earn a nice chunky salary at a corporate. So you've got to make sure that you can compete on other levels if that's not the one that you can compete on.
0: You know, I'm curious, was there ever a moment when you felt like just giving up?
1: I don't think um, I've ever thought I want to give up because you've you've put so much into it that I couldn't imagine giving up for any reason than being forced to. Because otherwise, what have you? What have you been doing with the last few years? Like, why would you do it? Why would you put yourself, your family, like the people you love, <laughs> through through the ringer uh, if you weren't going to then stay to the bitter end? So. I can't imagine that. And uh, both Ian and I are from like an endurance sports background, so it's, yeah, it's not really in our nature to give up. Never had a do not finish on a race.
0: That's a really interesting perspective that I've never really considered in all honesty. You know, one of the challenges that I face on my own journey is, is the difficulty in staying in touch with friends and family. And I, I think partly because as an entrepreneur, you know, you think that they only want to hear success stories, right? And the reality is that it's really hard work just trying to survive. I'm curious, how have you changed as a person since becoming an entrepreneur?
1: I was obviously a lot more carefree before I started Now Money because ultimately somebody else is is footing the payroll bill every month. So uh, someone else just gives you a nice salary for coming in and doing your job and then you do your job and the rest of the time you concentrate on having fun, playing sports, uh, going on holiday, whereas it's very difficult to be able to ta- detach yourself in that same way when you're running the company, which you know, I'm sure you and lots of other people listening to this would know. But uh, it's certainly, it's rewarding, but it is also like, incredibly personally challenging but I feel like I've changed for the better I hope I have anyway it's a bit late now if I haven't
0: (laughs) right okay and um if 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 I may go there um what keeps you up at night
1: different things one week to the next so I remember one of our earliest investors or sorry our first investor actually who is one of the most important people still to myself and Ian and he has, he's a British guy, but he's been in the UAE for over 50 years. He built construction companies. And when we were introduced to him, he just got the problem. He'd always had people that fell into this segment. So he just was the perfect fit for us. And he's still very, very much part of our journey and very involved with us. But he always has said to us along the journey, once you've got live customers, the problems will completely change. Then it will be all about this. And we thought, oh, no, it'll be, it'll be really fun by that stage running the business. It'll almost run itself. And, oh, he was so right. And he still is. So, yeah, from one week, one month, one year to the next, the problems that the business has and the issues that you have to deal with on a day-to-day basis are completely different. So things like, you know, once you've got 30 people, you start having to deal with people problems, you know, people's own personal problems that they obviously end up bringing into work. Um, Obviously, things like technology scaling, going from having 50 customers to having 100,000, like that's something that you've got to (laughs) address pretty quickly. Um, So actually dealing with the ins and outs of the product, uh, being able to have enough staff, enough good quality staff that you feel that you can trust with all your clients and banks as well. Um, Being able to have additional tools that you can work with that will manage the scale of the business, uh, more international requirements, I guess. So, you know, coming into Saudi, loads more requirements all over again, sort of starting from scratch, but not because we had the existing product in the UAE. So there's, there's always something different every single week. There'll never be a night that I'm not thinking about work before I go to sleep.
0: Speaking of work-life balance, do you feel like that's something that you've actually mastered at this point or is it a constant uh, balancing act?
1: I mean, between your mid-20s and your mid-30s, I think it's been quite widely discussed in the press that your friendship circle tends to reduce but become more important. So you don't have time to keep up with loads and loads of people. So the people that you do make the effort to see they need to be your kind of nearest and dearest. Um, I'm not sure whether that's that different for business owners to anybody else. For a long time, I've been quite a big part of the triathlon community, which is a huge, huge community uh, in the UAE. Uh, there's also a really great sports community here in Saudi. So triathlon here is, is quite big uh, up in Jeddah, and it's taking off more and more in Riyadh as well. So, yeah, sports is, I think it's a great part of the entrepreneur's journey. It's a great way to network as well. So a lot of triathletes are type A personality. So they tend to be people who are kind of business owners or uh, senior in in companies. So like a lot of the early now money clients are people that I knew from the triathlon community. The nice thing about being part of a, a training group is that you see those people really early in the morning. So they're not people that you have to carve out an evening for when you're absolutely knackered. You get up, we swim like two or three kilometers in the sea in the morning together, then go for breakfast together. You're still in work before nine. And it's pretty awesome to be able to like see the sunrise with your friends. It sounds a bit cheesy, but it also means that you're just exercising and you don't resent the exercise because you're going to get to see your mates and so that means you're sort of killing two birds with one stone. You're being social. You're seeing your friends and you're getting it done before the day starts with with work. But before it, you know, and you're in a good mood then by the time you, you come to the office to start the real hard graft.
0: What do you think others would find most surprising to learn about you?
1: Uh, people used to find it surprising that I was a data scientist because I think I perhaps don't come across as your average data scientist, but... Again, perhaps people shouldn't have such uh, stereotypical views of, of women that can be behind a computer and write code. So perhaps those, those views are changing.
0: Looking into the future then, now money is obviously expanding into Saudi and, you know, perhaps you have your eyes set on other countries here in the Gulf as well. Where do you see the company and yourself 10 years from now?
1: We're very much, for, for now, we're a, quite a Gulf-based company, so... UAE and Saudi are two huge markets, but we have also got plans to enter the rest of the Gulf markets, and they are enormous. They are still, is seven, eight, ten billion dollar remittance markets, as well as all the other product lines that we monetize. So, Oman, Kuwait, Qatar, um, really important to us to get into all of those markets. We do also have some investors who've got some great opportunities in Africa, so we might be looking at those. Um, We've got some more opportunities in the South African developing countries as well. So uh, those markets, mobile money is massive for, and there's certainly big opportunities there. There's also big populations of unbanked or underbanked people in Egypt, in the Levant, Um, For those markets and for Africa, the product would need to change a bit because at the moment, we are very much a remittance and um, sort of home spend play. Whereas if you're going to go into those markets, the population of unbanked people is domestic. So the people from those countries are struggling to get proper banking. So we would be less of a remittance business there and need to have some different business lines that, that make sense for those people and for us. But yeah, I mean, the opportunity is massive. I can't remember how many unbanked people there are globally now, but it's still absolutely enormous.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's obviously an area where digital can 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 play a great role in, in disrupting these old models. Um, what excites you then the most about the future of fintech? I, I know that KPMG released a report saying that the industry attracted investments of 98 billion US dollars in just the first six months of this year. So that's up more than $10 billion from, from the last six months of 2020, it's a growing industry, isn't it?
1: So I think there's still some massive opportunities to do things that are really pretty basic and should have been done much better by now that still aren't. And some of that is because perhaps the right monetization opportunity hasn't been found, but there's still problems that exist for consumers and for banks. Um, One of them, I'd say, is around receipts. So it's difficult to know exactly who to, for perhaps a new business to approach around receipts. But I think everybody can agree that receipts are a nuisance. They waste loads of paper. They're generally made of paper that's plastic coated, so they're bad for the environment. Customers lose them, so then they don't have them when they want to get the item again. But they're usually not prepared to pay for some kind of solution for it. The merchant who sold you the item isn't going to pay because they probably want you to lose the receipt. And uh, the card schemes, it's not really in their interest because they're not consumer facing. So whose problem is it to solve? So I think there's, there's things like that, which it's it's a very everyday thing, but it's not been really, really sorted. Um, the data the banks handle is still generally poorly set up, poorly cleansed. On this side of the world, there's still a, lot, a long way to go with uh, making banking data suitable to work with. And then for startups to work with that data and actually make it kind of sensible and helpful for customers and as a kind of advertising opportunity as well. So there are so many bits of of payments that aren't particularly revolutionary that you can look at and just do so much better. And uh, I think there's some really good business opportunities still waiting really for somebody to do better with.
0: Thanks for listening to Global Innovators, brought to you by World One Media. Visit globalinnovators.world for more information, and remember to hit the subscribe button to stay up to date with future episodes. Also, let us know what you think by rating us wherever you're listening. I'm Jim Stenman. Catch you again next time.